Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, we are back with part two of the life of Jane Addams, known by history as the mother of social work. In part one, we followed Jane through her upper class childhood and college, although it was her safety school, her father's safety school, <laughs> and over to England, where the radical philosophies of the Toynbee Hall settlement in London inspired her to open her own settlement in Chicago. A giant mansion in the middle of one of the worst slums in the city. In addition to hundreds of classes and meetings and clubs held in every room of the house and also, one by one, other buildings, there was really a deeply personal connection that Jane and her partner Ellen and all the other upper-class workers in the settlement were making with the poor residents of their neighborhood. Jane helped deliver a baby, for example. She sat holding hands at deathbeds. She she was a nurse for the sick, a conduit of aid for, say, workers who'd been injured on the job, widows with no resources, abandoned wives who were owed child support. So you see, the settlement itself was taken along, opening mines, providing a refuge, just being... You have to admit, very amazing. But don't forget this neighborhood in general, or all, frankly, the poor neighborhoods in Chicago. Just because Jane set up her program doesn't mean Halstead Street stops smelling like garbage. It doesn't make the drinking water clean. It doesn't make the alcoholics stop beating their wives and children. It doesn't stop children from dying. And seeing all of this made Ellen just fall apart. She, she felt it all too deeply, like I would, like you would, Susan, right? Like mm -hmm. mo most people would. This is nothing against Ellen. Uh, Ellen is just not a superhero. It's hard not to get personally involved and to come to terms with the fact that whatever you personally do, no matter how hard you work, you can't possibly fix everything. And I think it left her in a state of perpetual despair. But, you know, under the surface, she wasn't like staggering around wearing all black all the time, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I kept thinking about that because Jane seems to be handling the emotional aspects of this a whole lot better than Ellen did. And I wondered if it was because Ellen hadn't come from as wealthy a background as Jane did. So I wonder if Jane had kind of, I don't want to say this badly, but kind of an ignorant elitist mindset that everything was going to be okay. Does that make any sense at all? Well, I kept wondering how I could handle what she was seeing, and I couldn't. There are people, though, that have the quality, like Jane did, of being able to genuinely care for people in desperate situations without letting it get a hold of her. I have a very recent experience, of course. I liken it to the nurses in the ICU who take care of patients and their families every day. Mm -hmm. Multiple people. They're kind. They want the best for you. And also, they have to insulate themselves from you and your pain, or else they can't help anyone. Mm -hmm. People describe Jane Addams, Miss Addams, it always was, as, quote, impersonally thoughtful and kind with an indescribable magnetism. Could be that she had great training in not absorbing other people's feelings from her upbringing with her stepmother. Oh, that's an interesting thing. See, you gave it a little more thought than I did, I guess. And also, here's another factor. She was known, some say she was notorious, so that's a telling word, for speaking to people in the same respectful way regardless of their station in life. And I'm sorry to say this was not 
a usual quality found in the Gilded Age upper classes. You know, the old warning for the dating population, watch how your date treats the waiter. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so I think the fact that she all the time treated the lower classes like, you know, well, like the poor is made up of individual humans with thoughts and feelings of their own. Right. Radical. You know, Jane did see them like that. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder if it was something inherent in her, though. Yeah. I don't know. It's admirable, whatever it is. Ellen's more like everybody. So, you know, all the books are like, Ellen just fell apart. And I'm like, sister, like, <laughs> you need to lay off Ellen. Ellen is just a person. Jane's the superhero here. So Yeah, and Ellen is the sidekick. Okay. <laughs> Trust me, I am all about the sidekick. I am supportive of the sidekick. I am team sidekick a lot of times. So, <laughs> Well, Jane also rarely ever lost her temper. All that practice with her stepmother, I'm guaranteeing you came in handy here. Uh, people called Jane Serene. I think maybe it was the fact that she was finally being useful after so many years of wishing for something to do. She wrote in her autobiography, one is so overpowered by the misery and narrow lives of so large a number of city people that the wonder is that conscientious people can leave it alone. To her, this was a natural way to behave. She wrote in her autobiography also that she was happy to be sustained at the great well of human experience, which sounds fulfilled to me. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. as important to Jane as her projects benefit to the poor, that's what everybody else saw was the fact that she was enabling other educated women to gain fulfillment for themselves, too. You remember from part one, she'd been very clear that this had been one of her motivations from the beginning. Yeah. And the list of women that had come through Hull House um, and got their start in their professions is astonishing. And I don't even think we can possibly touch on all of them, although I guess we could probably highlight some. Yeah. Well, I had two in particular that I wanted to cover just okay. to show you <laughs> how far Jane's reach goes. So now, honestly, any of these people are probably worthy of their own episode, but we'll just give you a few. Keep in mind, there's more. There's also, by the end of this process, hundreds of settlement houses. So her influence is exponential. Okay. Florence Kelly, who was the daughter of a lawyer who had attended Cornell and had written about the perils of the working class and child labor before she ever got to Jane. She arrived at Hull House, separated from her husband, and used Hull House's platform to continue her work. Research that she did contributed to laws that reduced working hours for women, eliminated child labor, and regulated sweatshops. She was the first chief factory inspector in Chicago. She became a lawyer. She was the president of the National Consumers League, which is this, this is so cool. It was like the original, you know, how you have those lists, like if you don't approve of this political statement, don't buy these products or whatever. <laughs> it was exactly that. It was called the white label and products that had the white label were certified by Florence Kelly's organization as having ethical labor practices. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was very excellent. And she was one of the founding members of the NAACP and the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Okay, you know, I made brownies the other day, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, whatever, <laughs> these people. Julia Lathrop, number two, another lawyer's daughter, 
fellow Rockford alum, although she got to go to Vassar. Sorry. She ended up as the first woman on the Illinois State Board of Charities. She improved conditions in mental hospitals. She made sure that female doctors were appointed in female wards. That's super important in this time, I'm telling you. She was the first president of the United States Children's Bureau under President Taft, basically focused on maternal and child welfare, research into health and safety, visiting nurses. She's responsible for the focus on prenatal care and also juvenile justice system reform. I mean, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know the list of these women goes on and on and I have several, but I'm just going to pick out a couple that truly impressed me. Alice Hamilton. She had done a lot of research studies through Hull House because she was a postgraduate research scientist, but she couldn't get work in her field. She did a lot on uh, water studies and linking the climate and the conditions in the area to disease. Well, she would go on to become the first woman professor at Harvard, and she was called the founding mother of occupational medicine. Now, this woman could have, like you said before, her own episode, as could Frances Perkins. Frances Perkins would go on to be the first woman appointed to the U.S. cabinet, and we can thank her for her work establishing Social Security, the minimum wage, overtime, and child labor laws. And all of that work started at Hull House. It's just amazing what, given the opportunity, these women, what they could do with their lives. Jane and her crew had their fingers in a lot of pies. Jane and her crew changed the world. Racism, child labor, drug abuse research, overcrowding of cities, infant mortality, tracking the spread of typhoid fever, groundbreaking efforts into understanding the problems facing large cities. So back to our timeline. I mean, I don't want to diminish anyone we hadn't mentioned. We can't go into the hundreds. I think I can say hundreds of workers for whom this settlement house and the others inspired by it went on to do great things with their lives. So uh, the fact that we didn't mention some Someone is in no way our diminishment of their work. Believe me, we are in awe of what happened just based on one person's idea. You know, it's just amazing. <laughs> At the age of 30, Jane met a significant figure in her life. One day, the woman who had been teaching the kindergarten since the beginning, the kindergarten that had the 70-person wait list, that is amazing. That's like my, ch- <laughs> my child's school right now. Um, she brought a friend along, one Mary Rose Smith, who was the daughter of a wealthy paper manufacturer. And she began contributing cash and time to the project, but more importantly, became Jane's companion. What does that mean? There's a range of options to choose from. One of my sources referred to Mary as Jane's, quote, wife. Mm -hmm. Other historians are running around flapping their hands, panicked by this. It's hard to separate what was really romantic Victorian friendship from modern views of homosexuality. Okay, well, so we've got our ends of the spectrum there. The The passion was certainly there. In letters, Jane wrote, quote, I feel a rush of emotion when I think of you, or I long for you all the time. Your friendship has transformed my future. And so those were the letters Jane did not burn. And fine. I have to tell you, I personally, myself, Becky Graham only, have no problem accepting that Jane and Mary were in a girlfriend situation. People are strangely head up and emotional about this issue one way or another. I'm not sure why it's important for us to know 100% what Jane's sex life was. I um... Well, I will say this. It is very important for the lesbian community to embrace it because it gives young girls who are lesbians a role model in society to say, this has always been around, regardless of what, you know, some people in your life might be saying. It's not something brand new. 
back in this era, they were called Boston marriages. It was situations where two women could live together. Society approved of it. You know, they combined resources. They gave each other emotional support. They lived under the same roof and they had the same support system that a married couple would. Now, did they have the sexual part? I don't know. It's This is an era where we don't talk about those things one way or the other, even if it was a heterosexual marriage. So um, it's not important to me, but I'm a heterosexual woman. I believe it's important to the lesbian community and the LGBTQ community in large. Well, so those of you who have read, not seen, I mean, see Fried Green Tomatoes, that's fine. But when you read Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, it's Edgy Threadgood and Ruth. It's exactly the same. Like the intimations are there strongly that it's a romantic relationship, but there's no overt commentary. You know what I mean? So uh, it's not unusual to leave that in the realm of probability. I will tell you the museum itself, Whole House Museum, was in a swivet about their signage of a portrait of Mary Rose Smith. They weren't sure how to characterize her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And Okay. You want another piece of evidence? That portrait, when Jane traveled later in her life without Mary, she would haul this portrait around with her. I mean, I love you, Beckett, but I don't think I would take your portrait anywhere. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there's another check mark for the yeah, probably. Well, it seems like later when society began to turn its gimlet eye on these ladies, use that in a sense today. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, society got a little testier as time went on. And later in our story, Jane was actually trying to encourage Mary to marry a man. Get out of this scandal. Save yourself. They even separated for a while. But once they were reunited, you can forget that. You know, we're real. Uh That's why I, Beckett, am coming down on the side of true love. They they were together for 40 years. Well, when you say something like, and this is in a letter that was saved, you know, like we'd said earlier, the, a lot of the letters had been destroyed on Jane's death because she felt they were too personal. So these are the ones that aren't too personal. They said things like, I'm yours till death. Mm-hmm. It looks like a duck. <laughs> That's true. So let us leave Mary on her pedestal. Yes, she does belong on her pedestal because although Mary doesn't do in her life a lot of things that some of these other women do, her gift is supporting Jane while Jane supports the community. And so her role in Hull House is huge, even though her name isn't known for any particularly great social reforms. She was the support system. I'm also thinking it was super awkward. Just as a side note, Ellen's still in the house. Mm. And Ellen was kind of the first possibility as to life partner. She's still there. That seems very awkward to me. Anyway, (laughs) turning our attention back um, from Real Housewives of Whole House back to the settlement house. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, Jane had made a deal with their landlady to have the whole house now. No more furniture factory downstairs. Not sure if we talked about that. Uh, They had the house free of rent for four years. And that is a significant savings. And as a gesture of thanks for this, the settlement was renamed officially Hull House after the landlady's ancestor, Charles Hull, who had built the house in the first place. Not the project or the settlement. We can't say anymore, but Hull House now officially. Alliteration's better for branding anyway. Ask Susan. (laughs) Happy, happy Hull House. Oh, dear. I bet you approve of uh, superheroes like Clark Kent, Peter Parker. Yes. There's probably a lot more, but I am not that girl. Um, Financially, Jane had a problem. Despite good press, 
donations, and basic goodwill all over the place, Whole House was operating at a deficit. Jane made up the difference for years out of her own money, and no one ever knew. That would be bad publicity. That would be an admission of failure. Year by year, this idea that she had unlimited inherited funds, like a safety net in that way, should leave your mind. She is depleting her capital every year by thousands of 1890s dollars. Oh, yeah. That first year alone, she paid 58 percent of all Hull House expenses, which was like four times her annual income from her inheritance. That's a lot. She'd been so successful in her endeavors there that she really had to protect it at all costs. And I think she must have known what she was doing because she began to be in demand on a larger stage. Public speaking outside Chicago was beginning to make her into a household name. And it wasn't just philosophy that made her accept these invitations. She secretly needed the money. Mm-hmm. You know, but we kept that part all inside. <laughs> and even by contemporary standards, she really she was making about twenty five bucks per speech, which is about eight hundred dollars, which if you've ever hired a speaker, is a pretty cheap rate, I would think. And then it could be that she didn't know what speakers charged and people right. cheaped her out Mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. on the offer, which is certainly something that beginning speakers do all the time, too. So I wouldn't necessarily read too much into the fact that they didn't. They'll pay as little as they can. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's so very true. The settlement house movement is starting to kick off. In the first year that Hull House was open, there were six new settlement houses across the United States. Over the next seven years, there was 100 more. And 20 years after that, the 20 years of Hull House, there was another 400 more settlement houses across the U.S. So the information that she has, being the head of the most successful settlement house, is very valuable to these people who are starting their own across the country. And that's what she went to talk about. I think it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we will explore what happens in level two. And we're back. Okay. At Whole House, the Working People's Social Science Club had been meeting there for a couple of years. Florence Kelly was already a socialist. We didn't really talk about that. (laughs) But she knew all about it. But Jane was just fascinated to learn how working life went from the side of the workers. She'd never really thought about that exactly. It was a serious education for most of the upper-class women there. And Jane made a point of at least dropping by to stand in the back and listen whenever she could. In Chicago and in America, and probably in the world, frankly, wages were kept low. So women and children and a family were forced to work just to survive. Workers were often laid off with no notice. Workplace injuries, well, too bad, so sad. And children were required to work at a very young age. You could have toddlers in a sewing factory, you know, pulling threads. So if they're there working, they're not getting educated. I've seen some pictures of three and four-year-old oyster shuckers that stood barefoot in ice water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And then when they cried, they would get a slap in the face. So that's the level we have right now. Mm-hmm. Well, Jane asked around and invited a woman who was a bindery worker. Now, again, she had grown up 
in a family that was pretty well off, but due to the death of her father, she had to go to work in a factory. So she had had some education, um, invited this lady to come talk to her about unions. And at first, this person is all like, sure, right, like you care. Because at this time, the word union meant to the upper classes, riotous, ungrateful mob to most Mm -hmm. of Jane's class. But we know Jane better than that. Not only did she listen, she asked, now, what can we do together to help the girls in your trade? It was eye-opening and shocking to get Mm -hmm. this reach-over-the-aisle attitude. For real? You know, she'd come to this meeting with a giant chip on her shoulder and left with meeting space for her binder reunion, printing and distribution of flyers, and an invitation to stay for a few weeks to talk more about this. Now, it doesn't seem unlikely to us that understanding the plight of the poor would naturally lead to talk of unions, but believe me, it was radical for the time. Unheard of. Mm-hmm. On a basic person-to-person level that goes along with this, Jane remembered a couple of incidents that began to really energize her, I guess, anger about the state of affairs for workers in Chicago. Once during a children's party, Jane offered these little girls some candy and they were like repelled. Can't stand the stuff, miss. Not after being in it up to our elbows 14 hours a day in the candy factory. No, (laughs) thank you. I would rather never see candy again. Little children slaving away their whole childhoods working in factories. And I'm sure she must have known that in the abstract. Maybe the fact that it was a candy factory made it more vivid. Like, this is against nature. (laughs) You know, a kid who hates candy. uh, You know, I don't know if that's what it was. Or if it's the fact that maybe she knew these little girls personally. You know, it's always when you know it personally, it makes a difference, I think. You know, when you think of how she was raised, that makes this even a greater thing that she's able to understand, you know, the work situation from the worker's point of view. Her father, who she idolized, was kind of one of those pull yourself up by your bootstraps guys. People are poor because they let themselves be poor. They can work harder. That's how she was raised. You know, her father was in management. That's deeply ingrained in her. So I give her even more uh, credit for being able to overcome that because this idol in her head and to overcome his words. That's a big deal. That was a pretty common, probably still is, common philosophy among the upper classes that the poor are poor because they choose to be poor. Mm -hmm. Oh, I believe it to be very prevalent in today's society as well. So um, obviously Jane and Beckett do not think that's true. Or Susan. Let's get that. I want to slide myself in there. So there is a picture by Lewis Hines. There's a lot of them, actually. There's a specific photo that I want to try to put. If not due to copyright on our website, I would like to at least put that on the Pinterest. There's a little girl at what looks like a silk mill looking out the window that kind of exemplifies what I think about the pathos of little children wasting their childhoods in factories. So uh, I'll at least put it on the Pinterest if I can. The second incident that Jane called to mind was all these little neighborhood boys kept getting injured at the same machine at the same factory because it didn't have a safety guard on it. Have you seen those pictures of barefoot kids standing in the machinery? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it killed this last one. And Jane took off to have words with the factory owners about this, just sure they'd be horrified at how their managers were running the place. But surprise, surprise, their reaction was like, there's a hundred more kids where that one came from. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where her innocence about this kind of cruelty came from. Probably the same place Marie Antoinette's did. She'd been insulated by money 
and the cruelty was never shown to women of her class. She said in a later writing, a person who comes to live in a settlement house convinced they know all about working people must assume the best teacher of life is life itself. That is a philosophy that her father would not have appreciated. Class division was so strict, so accepted even, and I'm sort of surprised with all the socialist meetings going on at Whole House, all the growing (laughs) interest in the rights of workers. I mean, Jane herself mediated a women's worker strike at the Star Knitting Works that she did not get more pushback than she did. I will tell you, (laughs) there was an able assist right at the right time, an extraordinarily rich woman, one of the richest women in Chicago with the name of Louise Bowen who was already giving $15,000 a year, showed up with her presence and her fur coat to run one of the clubs out of the first floor. All of these conservatives would say, oh, these anarchist socialists over there at Whole House, and then be like, oh, wait, Mrs. Top Lofty Eminent, as Emily Post would say, is on board, huh, recalibrating. That was invaluable assistance socially. Jane was slowly starting to realize that the power of the poor to change their fate was probably their sheer numbers, their power to vote, which of course women could not yet do. It was a poser, which made working women the most powerless of all, really. She, Florence Kelly, and the powerful and large Chicago Women's Club we talked about during the first half of this episode, made up of women from all strata of society, began to lobby the state legislature to pass a sweatshop reform bill. And so effective were their efforts, their speaking engagements, their publicity, that a major clothing manufacturer, who of course employed four-year-old children to sew on buttons, offered Jane $50,000 to lay off. That's $50,893. Mm -hmm. I'm being offered a bribe. Yeah, and that's a big bribe. And that's when you know it's working, sister. Uh Uh-huh. But she felt dirty. Like, how dare they think that I'm a kind of person? Well, that's their only perspective. Money will pay for everything. Right. Um, I, I don't know why she felt so bad about that. Well, the Workshop and Factory Act, which is the official name of the sweatshop bill, that's not as attractive, it passed almost unanimously at the state legislature. No children under 14 could be in factories. Women and teens could only work an eight-hour day. And Fine, that's okay. There's been laws like this before, said the factory owners. Like, we'll just avoid those two, just like before. Oh, no. There were factory inspectors to check this was happening. Now the factory inspectors have the power to seize goods from companies who violated the rules. So if you violate these rules, we will take all your equipment. Oh, crap. That's a big one. And who was the first official inspector? The big boss? Jane's co-worker, Florence Kelly, one of the women we talked about before. I just love how Whole House became a springboard for all these other achievements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. It's one of my favorite things about the whole thing. I mean, you know, from a woman's perspective, this is amazing. This is an amazing opportunity. And they just did it because they wanted to. And they just found a need and followed it. Let's get it changed. Well, it's the year 1893 and we're in Chicago. (laughs) So as the summer arrives, so does our favorite, the Columbian Exposition. Annie Oakley's there with Buffalo Bill's (laughs) Wild West show. Helen Keller's hanging out with Mark Twain down the hall there. (laughs) Anyone who is alive has made it there at some point, I think. I'm sure you won't be surprised exactly that social reform didn't have a giant presence There's no booth, really. No, no. I knew what was going on in in the world and in Chicago 
when the fair opened. But for some reason in my head, they were two separate things. You know, the fair, it's so glittering and beautiful and the white city and all this innovation that's coming in and all these people that are coming through. It's so Gilded Age. Here's the glittering white city in the World's Fair and behind it is poverty. In 1893, there is a depression. And so all the people behind the World's Fair, all the people who built the World's Fair are all impoverished. It's just, it never like struck in my head that these things were juxtaposed at this particular time in history. For some reason, it clicked for me here. Well, it was all that PBR. PBR was was introduced at the World's Fair, Ferris wheel electric lights. There were an awful lot of distractions for the average Joe or Susan. Don't look behind the curtain. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you know, the fair is right in Jane's backyard. And of course, she has to get involved. Um, She was the chair of the Women's Committee and coordinated programs involving, of course, the Settlement House movement. There was a three-day organization of speakers that she helped coordinate and was a part of. There was a major series of what was called Women's Congresses in what is now the Chicago Art Institute building. It's kind of a parallel, you know, conclave featuring such speakers as Susan B. Anthony, Victoria Woodhull, and of course Jane Addams and other members of Hull House. But the big memory for Jane this year was not the fair. Actually, it was a series of events that began when that major national economic depression happened because it brought the people in the city of Chicago crashing down around Jane's ears. Hull House was not usually in the business of what was called relief, you know, your standard charity, soup kitchen, bundle of clothes kind of place. But the acute nature of the crisis and the sheer volume of people crowding in to beg for help meant that whole house was just hemorrhaging money. We can't not help, said Jane, but she knew this was A, a band-aid, and B, couldn't last forever. The money situation was so dicey. As workers were laid off throughout the city or asked to take pay cuts, which I love, the guys at the top never took pay cuts. (laughs) And still don't. Yeah, I was like surprise level zero. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Labor uprising started hitting the news. You know, the nice suburbanites already thought workers were this simmering mob in good times. And now with just grievances, they became, I don't know, terrifying monsters intent on, you know, destroying the world. Here's one in particular, the Pullman Corporation, they're the ones that make the fancy sleeper cars for trains. They had laid off a large amount of workers and they cut all the survivors pay by 30%. One day you're making, you know, say $10 a week and barely making it. And the next day, wham, $7 a week. Not only that. Pullman employees lived in a designed community, much like some Disney employees do today, or at least did. Mm-hmm. Pullman owned the grocery stores. Pullman owned the clothing stores. Pullman owned the workers' houses for which they had to pay rent. And did the prices go down on these commodities to match the wage reductions? No, they did not. Can you? That is dastardly. I know. And actually, I grew up in a town that was built like this around uh, fabric mills. They had the mills and they had the houses and the management lived in the bigger houses and then the workers lived in smaller houses all in the area and they all built you know the grocery stores and all the utilities and stuff all came through the um it was very common at this time of you know in history actually my point (laughs) so there is a history of tied cottages you know you give the gardener a cottage and then if you fire the gardener or he dies his family is booted Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened with factory workers, too. Well, after a further wage reduction 
followed by a refusal to negotiate on rents or anything, 5,000 workers walked out on their jobs. Other unions joined them. And when the railroads fired workers who had struck, striked, Striked. <laughs> question mark. Really big question mark. <laughs> um, well, whole train crews quit in solidarity. And it brought railroad traffic to a halt all over the country. The whole supply chain. There's not a whole lot of overland trucking during this time period. Mm-hmm. So um, we're looking at a massive disruption to the economy, except the mail. I thought this was great. The big boss said, nope, mail's federal. We don't want to get into all that. Keep delivering the mail. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it didn't help because federal troops had to be sent anyway because when Mr. Pullman hired scabs, which is what they call workers that cross the picket line, to work the railroads, riots broke out in a lot of places. Train cars pushed over, set on fire, tracks pulled up, railroad offices destroyed. It was a nationwide crisis. Well, I wonder what happens when you exploit people and then treat them like dirt. See French Revolution. (laughs) See a lot of revolution. Oh, yes. Fictional and factual. I do believe that is the entire plot of the Hunger Games series, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, Jane was asked to be part of the arbitration committee, which was six people that were brought in to try and act as go-betweens between management and the employees. Jane knew George Pullman. He had actually contributed to Hull House. She went in with like, okay, this is going to work. You know, I know this guy, but it didn't. Yeah, he was pretty dug in. His viewpoint was, how dare those ungrateful so-and-sos rise up against, it was very paternalistic, rise up against, I built them houses. I provided jobs for them. And this is how my children repay me. It was like that kind of thing. Like he (laughs) He was indignant that they dared question his judgment. And see, he doesn't see them as people with feelings. Jane is in a unique position here because she can see it from both sides. She knows Pullman socially. I don't think she has enough time to convince a guy like this. You know, he has to be exposed a long time. I I don't think this whole conversation was ever going to work. In the midst of all this, Jane's eldest sister, Mary, her surrogate mother, was dying. Uh, Mary had had cancer and Jane had arranged for Mary to be sent to a hospital in Wisconsin from Illinois, where the family lived, where Mary's children and husband were. But when Mary took a turn, the family was called for and they couldn't get to Mary. So only Jane could, and only Jane was given a private rail car during a rail strike to go up and visit her sister and be with her sister as she passed away. The final day, I I kept reading this and it just broke my heart. Mary kept asking, where's my family? Where's my family? And Jane's, you know, holding her hand saying, they're going to be here, knowing full well that they weren't going to be able to get there before Mary died and they didn't make it. Here's a very, very short synopsis of what happened. After all the riots, $80 million in damages, tens of deaths, etc., Um, A Supreme Court decision that did not favor the leader of the strikers. Ultimately, it was found during President Grover Cleveland's administration that the paternalistic nature of the Pullman town and companies in general were un-American and not conducive to the growth of America. And six days after this strike was concluded and all the business was dusted off of your hands, President Grover Cleveland designated a national holiday, Labor Day. So you see, we all experience a direct result of the Pullman strike. For some of us, of course, it might just be hot dogs and hamburgers, but it is a holiday that honors the workers of America. Based on a strike that Jane Adams helped to mediate. 
Jane arranged for her niece and nephews, the children of her sister Mary, who had just died, to attend assorted boarding schools, hither and yon. But then, as she was walking around the neighborhood, she was kind of struck with this crippling guilt. I just send the children I'm responsible for to nice, safe places without thinking about it. And everywhere around me are mothers with the same feelings as mine who are powerless to save their children from typhoid or starvation or squalor. And Jane saw another quest. She felt the same feeling of inevitability plus excitement that she did when she thought about opening Hull House. I, and friends, are going to clean up the neighborhood itself, the whole dang city, if I have to, so the poor are going to have another advantage on their side, on their road to self-improvement. It doesn't help if the children have fresh milk if it's full of dirt. It doesn't help if the mother cleans the house and typhoid comes in through the window. So (laughs) she needed to give them some more support. And guess what she found? Corruption in 19th century politics in Chicago? What? The Windy City. Lots of people think that it's because of the winds. And a lot more people believe that it's because of the winds of politicians, the hot air that they're blowing. It popped up originally in that context during the negotiations for the World's Fair between New York and Chicago. They were battling it out. And all the politicians of Chicago were just blowing hot air. And the newspaper said, the Windy City. But predating that by about 50 years, the Windy City was actually used as a term in the papers to talk about the wind and to talk about a tornado that had hit the city. So I always thought it was the politicians. Yeah, that's what I learned. Today I learned. (laughs) It's kind of one of those things that there's just a double meaning for it, which makes it even a more uh, beautiful phrase, I guess. Well, this is an era of pay to play, I will tell you. And I'm sorry to say that the local alderman had given a friend the lucrative trash contract. This is just one example. Uh, And he just pocketed the money without bothering to, you know, pick up any trash. Thus, the rotting piles of garbage everywhere. This did not take a lot of detective work. This was very open. She tried to get the contract herself when it came up, you know, to haul it out for real. But her offer was, quote, somehow lost. Mm. But in the resulting publicity from all of this, the mayor, the Republican mayor, remember, 1890s Republican is 2018 Democrat. I must find the link to that again. The party switched platforms. Anyway, mm-hmm. between Lincoln and Kennedy. Anyway, the, the Republican mayor, probably despite the Democratic machine, appointed Jane the garbage inspector. <laughs> it's a real job and had a real salary. And danged if she didn't follow the crews around with maps and notes and visits to a judge and citations and got this mess in order. She was only there for a month and a half before she passed the job to another member of Whole House. It was good publicity for her. Too bad the crooked politician managed to grub it back from them later. She fought against this guy. His name is Powers. He was so corrupt. For like five years, acutely. Mm -hmm. She wanted to topple him and his regime and his hold on power. And I have to tell you, corruption in Chicago and toppling powers took a long time. I mean, decades. Yeah, the whole story of Johnny Powers is just a study in the corruption of Chicago at the time. He was an immigrant. He was an Irish immigrant who had won on the I'm one of you people platform. And then he turned his intelligence into a series of schemes to line his pocket. And he would do things for his community, like pay for a funeral here and give so-and-so a job and say, look how magnanimous I am. And 
when in reality he wasn't, but he just kept being elected over and over and over again <laughs> because women couldn't vote. <laughs> That's what I say. That's just Susan Vollenweider. Well, and I also think for the actual voters, they just couldn't see the big picture. And I think that's true today. What you might see is the fact that Johnny Powers paid for your cousin's funeral, but you don't understand that Johnny Powers is sort of responsible for him dying in the first place because his people didn't pick up the garbage, typhoid ran rampant, and thus he died. So I just think maybe they weren't connecting his nefarious behavior with their own lives in a way that maybe education would have helped. I don't know that women themselves voting would have caused any difference unless they were also able to connect the dots. So Jane realized she was not going to win this particular fight. So she had to go around him. Basically, she had a successories moment. Remember successories? I want the courage to change what I can, the strength to bear what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. I always think I need a cat hanging off a branch. <laughs> hang in there. You know. Just hang in there. Yeah, right. <laughs> Onward and upward. It was time for society to pitch in. She began writing articles for prominent publications on education, prison reform, political reform, unions, workers' rights, everything she could think of that needed to change in society at large. And that way, she'd be able to change the neighborhood around Whole House. And the way the new 100 or so settlement houses inspired by hers were changing their own communities. Action is the only medium of expression for one's ethics, she said. She was just the hero of this whole movement. Mm -hmm. Everyone idolized her. Somebody from the New York Henry Street settlement, which is another very famous one that is still in existence, wrote to her, one small group has a deeper desire than ever to press its service into and for a fairer society for having touched you. I want you to know that we want to be good. And like children, we are looking up to you for guidance. So she's Joan of Arc. <laughs> she took these articles, she turned them into speeches and took them all over this country and all over to England where she returned the favor for inspiring her work by firing up optimism and drive in the hearts of anyone who heard her. She was like the best TED Talk you ever saw. People everywhere could not stop talking about her. She would show up for speeches and her clothes were just a mess. And Mary would have to rearrange her clothes before she went up to the podium because her slip was showing. And Jane would just say, oh, never mind. I'm only going to do a speech. Like, no big deal. <laughs> her very last major Chicago project was assisting Florence Kelly's team to create the Cook County Juvenile Court System. And the rest of Whole House stepped in to provide practical matters like they did housing, schooling, and transportation. The concept of treating juvenile offenders less harshly than adults was a novel concept, which over the next couple of decades became standard practice. Do you hear all that rumbling? That's the groundbreaking of Jane Addams. <laughs> well, buckle up, kids, because from now, her life goes national and then international. I think it's time after level two to take a little break. And when we come back, we will see what happens in level three.
And we're back. It is time to go national and international. It is. And it wasn't all work and no play. Jane and Mary took a side trip to Russia where they met with Leo Tolstoy. Back when Jane was still kind of floundering in her life, trying to find her purpose, she had read Tolstoy's War and Peace. She felt like her life sort of mirrored his. He believed that the Russian upper and ruling classes mistreated the lower ones. And also, although he was from a wealthy family, he began to live like a peasant and live with the lower classes and live like the lower classes. Classes. He worked in the field. He dressed and ate like the working class man. He made his own boots. So Jane was very excited to meet him. And Tolstoy was on brand, but he wasn't what she expected. He criticized her clothing. She had a puffy sleeve dress on that had enough fabric for a little girl's dress. And he thought that Jane looked too upper class to be effective with her neighbors. Well, he basically called her, although this word wouldn't be popular for some years, he called her a poser. A poser. I mean, oh, how crushing. So that was a bummer. That was a little bit of, hmm, you know, like when you go to Comic-Con and the guy's not very nice to you or whatever. <laughs> well, I think it also gave her an opportunity to do some soul searching to see where she really, you know, she had idolized him and put him on this pedestal and she had to decide how she really was, not how Tolstoy was. In a hard way, it was probably a good thing. I don't think she changed the way she was. I mean, even that night after this conversation, she went and had the fancy dinner while he ate porridge and black bread. <laughs> so I'm, I'm mixed on this one. I don't know that it was horrible, but I don't know that it was a great thing either. Maybe eating the fancy dinner was as close as a refined woman of the Gilded Age could get to literally putting up the bad finger. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. So back to some more accomplishments. Let's bag that guy. Whatever. Uh, at 49, she was part of the founding committee for the creation of the NAACP. You don't really connect people. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois, sure. Jane Addams, you don't really, that doesn't rise to the top of your mind. So that's a good thing. And then at 50, Jane published a memoir called 20 Years at Whole House. Not her first book by the way. Over yeah. the course of her life, she would write or co-author, I want to say, 12 books and over 500 articles. If you want to feel not accomplished, just saying, I'm not worthy. <laughs> uh, you know who else seems to be ringing a lot out of the average day? Kristen Bell. Oh. Have you noticed she's got this whole new series called Momsplaining? She's got the mm -hmm. good play. She's on all these commercials. I'm like, what am I doing with my hours? <laughs> That's true. I don't know. I'm surrounded by people like that. And I never think I'm accomplished at all. Although this is me justifying Jane's work. Well, a lot of her books were her speeches that she just collected by subject. Oh, you're pointing to recycling. <laughs> Ooh, how innovative of her. Well, she became vice president of the National American Woman Suffrage Association the year after her memoir was published. And I found it sort of illuminating that Jane felt that women should have the vote because women's natural goodness had the power to change the world for the better. Whereas, if you recall, Louisa May Alcott thought they should have it because they're people. Mm -hmm. period. Uh, Louisa didn't feel the need to put women folk on a pedestal. Although, you know, Jane's views did evolve a little over time in a famous speech that she gave called Why Women Should Vote. She did spend a lot of time connecting the traditional roles of women 
education, children in the home, culture, and explaining how women needed to influence the greater community with her vote in order to be able to better fulfill her domestic duties. It's the whole, you know, you need the garbage gone so that your children don't get typhoid kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It was the same kind of soft sell stuff she'd used when she was starting Whole House. If you recall, oh, we are just providing the functions of motherhood. I think that every single suffragist had a different take on why they were standing there. You know, it's all a little bit different. The ultimate goal is the same, but the reasons are all all personal. Well, she this is a quote from the speech. Public spirited women who wish to have the ballot do not wish to take over men's affairs. They simply wish an opportunity to do their own work, which is constantly being overlooked and slighted in our political institutions. So I guess that is to say changing the city will change my house. And that's why I'm here. And it will get Johnny Powers out of office, (laughs) which doesn't happen until like the 1920s. I mean, he's there. He's ingrained. He's going to be a thorn in her side this whole time. So to preserve the home, women should have the vote. That was her position. She had an amazing platform, by the way, to spread this message. Jane was at this point, maybe the most famous woman in America on a national level. Uh, Former president Theodore Roosevelt was going to try for a third term, this time under the Progressive Party banner. And during an event in the year 1912, Jane was the person that seconded his nomination for president. How cool is that? The first woman (laughs) ever to do so to a cheering crowd. Now, he didn't win. He was the only third party candidate in the era of R versus D, if you know what I mean, to ever get second place in the contest. Like, he did not come in last. That's the only time that's ever happened. <laughs> Jean wasn't doing everything just so that she could be, a, you know, this instrument for change. She was, like Tolstoy, willing to stand up for what she believed, even if it cost her dollars in her pocket. One time there was a family of a Russian Jewish man in Chicago who had been arrested for writing progressive anti-government opinions in his paper. The family asked Jane to visit him in jail to make sure that he was okay. And Jane, with an entourage of 16 policemen, because this old guy was so dangerous, quotes, quotes, went to visit him. And when the man was released, not because of Jane, but because there was no crime committed, public opinion opinion for her support of this anarchist. She took a hit. She took a hit, not only in the opinion area, but also in the financial. His checkbooks started to close a little bit, but it was what she believed in. She went in knowing that was going to happen, and she it was true to what happened. Even a year later, she spoke at a funeral of a former Illinois governor who had worked with Jane on children's and women's labor laws, but whose reputation among wealthy factory owners and their friends obviously wasn't so great. And again, supporting this man, even in his death, um, she took a hit again because the upper classes who were supporting Hull House were also the manufacturing owners who had been affected by these changes. So she was, I, I don't know, I was really proud of her for standing up for what she believed and staying on brand. I mean, for the rest of her life, even though there, she's going to take more hits like this. When World War One, obviously just called at this point the Great War until we get to World War Two, because that would make no sense. <laughs> uh, when it broke out in Europe, Jane came out strongly against America getting involved in this war. Now, she was not alone, even at the top. 
president of the United States, Wilson tried to keep the United States out of the actual conflict, though it must be said that the United States saw no trouble or conflict of interest in supplying one side with materials. So how neutral were we? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, Jane was elected chairman of the Women's Peace Party, whose mission it was, quote, to wage a woman's war against war. It was, it had a humanitarian angle and a women's suffrage platform, perfect for Jane, perfect for her reputation. The founding convention that she chaired also approved what they called a program for constructive peace. And they demanded that the government called a conference of neutral nations to talk to, you know, basically to go to arbitration. And also they called for peace based on no transfers of territory without the vote of the people in those territories. And no fine should be assessed after the war and no treaties should be established without the people voting. So that was like kind of like, woo, you're expecting a lot. They were very, very, very intent on representative government affecting how war was conducted or not conducted. I think it was just too much for people who just want to be like, you're bad. We're going to war. <laughs> they, they like expected a lot. I think. Yeah. Well, you got to expect a lot to That's get true. something. I guess it's better to aim high and miss than aim low and hit. Right. As president of the Women's Peace Party, Jane Addams was asked to preside over an international convention for peace at The Hague in the Netherlands, another neutral country. But the water was full of German mines. It was kind of brave to go there at all. 3,200 people attended this three-day convention, of which Jane Addams was the chair. It had a similar platform to the American women's platform, but also called for mediation from neutral countries in order to work toward a permanent peace for the entire world. After the meeting, Jane and company toured battlefields and spoke to soldiers of many nations as they were representatives of neutral countries. But oh no, something happened. During a speech she gave at Carnegie Hall after she came back, Jane made kind of an offhand remark. And I'm sure she meant, like, even the soldiers don't understand what they're fighting for. And you know World War I is just that way. I still don't know what the point was, you know? Mm -hmm. But what she said out loud was, the soldiers in every country I visited need stimulants like liquor or dope before they could bear to fight at all. And this comment went viral in the worst way. Viral venom. I would call it. Yeah, this is another one of those major hits she took. You know, on Twitter, somebody miss says something, it's taken out of context, or they choose the wrong words. Boom. Same thing happened to Jane. I, that just blew my mind. The parallels between time then and time now in this story were just... I don't think saddened me almost. Well, that just goes to say, you know, the whole point of our podcast is people are the same people. It's just mm -hmm. that, you know, the circumstances around them are sometimes different. So right. misspeaking goes throughout the history of everyone <laughs> everywhere. Excellent well, point. so the point of society was how dare you question the bravery of a man who is risking his life for his country, even though like, I, you know. I'm not 100% sure that's what she meant at all. I think she meant, like, what is this war even? No one gets it. Mm -hmm. Like, can we just not, can we just have cooler heads prevailing and look at the situation realistically when even the men in the middle of the conflict don't understand what they're fighting for? Why should we be having this war? That's just mm -hmm. not how it came out. So before this speech... I mean, it was newspaper headlines the next day. Before this speech, she couldn't be heard for all the applause at the beginning of her speeches. You know, like she had to wait a long time for it to die down before she could even talk. After this speech, she would speak 
and people would get up and leave. Even the president of the country called her an ass. It was too much. It was too much for her. And it shook her to her core. She felt betrayed, as she should, really. The chronic bad health that had affected her since childhood at moments of stress really hit her from now on. She never really 100% recovered. She had more classic stress, headache, backache, fatigue than almost anyone I have ever heard of in times of stress. Well, she also had, you know, from childhood, she had physical issues, especially with her back. So I'm wondering if those are just starting to, you know, be exacerbated as her whole body is getting older. It happens to all of us, right? But when you run as hard as she did for this huge chunk of her life, it's going to hit even harder. At the end of the war, after she kind of, you know, bolt hold it up, she came out with plenty of others. I just don't want you to think she's just waving her little flag alone on a, you know, stick or whatever. <laughs> the Treaty of Versailles, the treaty that ended World War I, was condemned sort of widely. Many said that it was economically too harsh on Germany and, put your flashlight on this sentence, might lead to social unrest in Germany for decades and therefore another war. You sometimes have to listen to the Cassandras because they are correct. <laughs> Yeah. So right after World War One, with all the liberty cabbage instead of sauerkraut and all of the giant prejudice against Germans and communists and the other, there was a red scare all over the world. But specifically in America, labor unions were considered to be very communist. Well, Jane Addams, that person that said that thing, was very labor union. So she must be a communist. She's subversive. She's suspect. And she was called in a newspaper article, and I quote, the most dangerous and powerful woman in America. Jeez, people. (laughs) Yeah, she was so dangerous that she was put under uh, surveillance by the Department of Justice because they felt that she was too much of a communist and socialist and, you know, bought into too much Bolshevism. That's how dangerous they thought she was, like official dangerous. In 1920, she was instrumental in the founding of the ACLU, you know, goes along with her labor work. But for most of the 1920s, she was either out of the country or in she and Mary's country house in Maine. I think the betrayal hit her very, very hard. And after a lifetime of work and self-sacrifice to have this be the third act, it was almost inconceivable, I think. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I'm glad that they had that place in Maine you know, to escape to. It's beautiful up there. It was in Bar Harbor. I'll put some pictures. It's gorgeous. You know, my husband has chosen to go uh, work on a lobster boat uh, for a few days. In what month? In Maine, in this month. And most of the lobster, most of the lobster boats have closed down. They closed down in October, but there's one guy that goes out through December, weather permitting. Mm -hmm. And he's like, do you expect to be paid for your work? And Chris Graham is like, I thought I would pay you. And the guy's like, well, Let's neither of us pay each other, and that's fine. I'll just give you some lobsters. <laughs> I'm like, only Chris Graham can remotely make that kind of a fun. <laughs> make it work. Oh, he's never going to want lobster anywhere else. We used to do that, like the lobster boats would come in when I was in New England and Maine, and we just chase them down in the dinghy and buy the lobster right off the boat. It's the best. I remember my friend Heather apologizing to her lobster before she ate it. Hi, Heather. (laughs) We had a friend who was convinced that if you stand them on their heads, it anesthetizes them enough that you can plunge them in the water. I know all the vegetarians are gasping at this point. (laughs) I don't know. We stood them on their heads. I 
I don't know if it did anything. It made us feel better. <laughs> There's a chapter of Julie and Julia where Julie talks about her lobster murders. Her lobster murders, yeah. Well, anyway, so she's in Maine. I'm not 100% sure if she killed, ate, or even saw any lobsters. She's in Maine hiding from the world. But her work with the poor could not be denied forever. Times changed. The country's mood readjusted its attitude toward her during the Depression. (laughs) I wonder why. Oh, this is what you fought so hard to ameliorate your whole life. I think it's the Depression that made people realize what they had thrown away. And they made up, I guess, if that's an explanation. (laughs) She and the country made up. Jane was given, awarded, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931 for her life's work, especially since she stepped onto the world stage as a peace and suffrage warrior just before World War One, but she was too ill to attend the ceremony. I often think we wait too long to give our heroes the awards. Remember Clara Bow getting that award when she was in her 70s and not understanding what was happening? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we just need to tell people they're awesome while they're healthy enough to hear it. Jane's last big event had been an invitation from Eleanor Roosevelt to come to the White House and be honored for her work with the Women's International League. And Jane did take part in an around-the-world peace broadcast. And she was the last speaker on this radio program promoting peace around the world. I mean, all these radio stations globally were all organized for this one event. And that was the last time her voice was heard. That's a good way to go out. So after this radio broadcast, Jane fought her cancer for a little while longer. She actually outlived her beloved Mary, but only for a year. During a follow-up operation after a resurgence of her cancer, Jane Addams died on May 21st, 1935. She lay in state at Hull House, her coffin resting on a bed of tulips as generations of Hull House community members, former residents, and world leaders came to pay their respects to a person who had changed their lives. In fact, she had changed the entire world. And that brings us to the end of the life of Jane Addams. Well, there was no shortage for books for Jane, that's for sure. No, and so I'm going to reduce mine to two. I have, I feel bad because I have, maybe I'll just put them on the Pinterest board. I do have quite a few more. I, I got more snippets of different things out of different books this time than at any point since Clara Bow. Like I remember mm-hmm. I have a picture of when I was researching Clara Bow and there were like books open all over the place, little scraps of paper all over the place. And I resorted to cut and paste this time. And I mean, literally, I took the scissor and cut out pieces of writing <laughs> and I taped them in a notebook in little sections. <laughs> Um, and I haven't done that since Clara Bow. So I'm going to reduce my list to two. Here they are. Okay. Good luck. And this is good for her beginning, especially. A Useful Woman, The Early Life of Jane Addams by Joya Deliberto. I found extraordinarily helpful, especially for her early life. And then more seriously and getting more into her philosophy and her views on democracy, etc. Citizen, Jane Addams and the Struggle for Democracy by Louise W. Knight. I think those two taken together will get you a pretty circular picture. Mm-hmm. I think Louise W. Knight has a second book. I know she does. And I, for some reason, I didn't write it down. Maybe I saw her name listed on my list, but I read that one too. She has two books on Jane Addams, two biographies. So I'll put that on the show notes. I'm, I apologize. 
usually I write everything down because <laughs> I have books on here that I'm not even going to tell you about. And I don't have that one for some reason. I would also, it, it didn't take me too long to get through Jane Addams, a biography by her nephew, James Weber Lynn. Then the information is kind of dated, but it's based on her remaining letters and, you know, family lore. And he was closer. He knew Jane. So I think that was a good one to get some feel about her. Okay. And there was a YA book that I thought had surprising detail. It's called Jane Addams, A Biography by Robin Burson. And it looks just like one of those YA books that you're just not going to, um, maybe not even YA, maybe even middle grade, that you're just going to kind of read just for background, you know, just real quick. And I was surprised at the level of detail of it. So that was pretty impressive, as was another uh, middle grade was Jane Addams, Champion of Democracy by Judith Bloom Fraden and Dennis Brindell Fraden. Again, it looks like one of those books that you're just going to toss aside because it's, you know, light and that doesn't have a lot of detail. Shockingly, had a lot. I was very impressed with those two. Of course, you could read Jane's own books. Um, I think if you were just going to read one, it would be 20 Years at Hull House which is a good start. It gives, you know, the whole story and her you background. You can actually read it online for free uh, at the digital library at UPenn. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, I've got a link to that. And also it's available in LibriVox for free. Mm-hmm. So if you're an audiobook person or a r- readable book person, <laughs> uh, it's available to you. Yeah, um, I, I listened to it for free. That's how I was on a long trip and yeah. I got through it. Yeah. As far as kids books goes, uh, the one that I would recommend, I think this is the one you did too. The House That Jane Built, A Story About Jane Addams by Tanya Lee Stone, illustrated by Catherine Brown. And we've recommended Tanya Lee Stone books before for other women. She has a big library of biographies that she's written for kids. And I was telling you, that's going to be the one that I'm going to be owning soon because I can't find it. <laughs> and due to the longevity of my loan period with all the Jane Addams books. They are getting a little shirty about my returning of said book, which I have literally got no idea where to even begin looking. Oh dear. So I, um, I'm proud to say I will be owning that book soon. Most likely. (laughs) I hope you can find it so you can put it on a shelf or give it away. You know, that'd be nice. It'll turn up in a few years having been slipped behind something or (sighs) I don't know. Of course, that's the way it works. I don't have any other books I'm going to recommend, although I think there was a couple more that I did put on the show notes. But there's so many books. I mean, this is just, you know, these are just the ones that we read that we liked. There's so many more out there. So we would be remiss if we didn't direct you to the classic The Whole House Museum website. Um, Also, corollary to this, the Henry Street Settlement in New York City, which is still in operation. You can see how the settlement philosophies have grown and adapted to today's world because they are very similar in philosophy now to how it all began back in the day. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. good to me. Also, the whole entire essay, Why Women Should Vote, is available online for you to read. I don't remember. I think this is from section one. For some reason, I'm giving you the link to the theme song from Bosom Buddies. Yeah, it was from section one. I actually put the uh, uh, YouTube from Bosom Buddies on the show notes for section one. You know, to give people something to watch. <laughs> and oh, I did okay. put it down. I'm like, you have to have listened to the show to understand why we're giving you bosom buddies right now. <laughs> All righty. Okay. And then Toynbee Hall has still in existence the original inspiration for the settlement movement. Toynbeehall.org is still there. There is also a couple of articles I want to recommend on the phenomenon of Boston marriage and even 
Further, should we use the L word for Jane Addams, an article from WBEZ.org? So I thought those were good for a little more background on that aspect of her life. There is an article on Salon called The Dilemma of Wanting to Help Jane Addams to Barack Obama. So I thought that was a good article. I really got something out of that. And the last thing I have is really just a link to the Jane Addams Trail, which also passes by the site of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So there's a couple of different historical places you'll be hitting as you hike that trail. Uh-huh. Speaking of other trails, um, the Legacy Project Chicago.org will give you a link to it. They have the world's only outdoor museum. It's a walk down Halstead Street with plaques and installments um, celebrating the lives of historical LGBTQ people. That's very impressive. And you can actually tour it online a little bit through their map and there's links to all. It's it's a cool website. I'll send you there. And if you are in Chicago and you go to the Hull House Museum and you take the legacy walk down Hall Street, you might as well just take a little tour up to Cedarville and go visit her grave because she is buried in Cedarville. And you can also go to the Cedarville Historical Museum, which if you can't get there, they do have an online virtual tour. And you know how much I like those. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's some documentaries, but no real feature movie. Again, I'm a little bewildered. I don't know that there's that much action. I mean, there's not going to be any motorcycle chases or anything blowing up. Although there really could be something blowing up. If you covered the Pullman strike, you'd have an action sequence there right toward the last third. That's what you (laughs) want in a movie. So if anybody is looking for a um, thesis project for film school, again, You know, we're just giving these out. I guess give us a seat for the premiere. (laughs) You know what, though? I would really be disappointed if somebody made a movie and just focused on her love life. You know, what it was like when, you know, Ellen and Mary and Jane were all living in the same house. You know, what? I mean, it must have been interesting, but that's not the point of the movie. You should really focus on other things. That's all I'm saying. We say as if we've ever been to film school. I know. <laughs> We've watched enough movies, right? <laughs> Alrighty. Well, that does it for our coverage of Jane Adams. We have received lots of feedback that this was a person that no one was really that familiar with. So we're glad to illuminate the life of someone who honestly has changed your life in this country. If you've ever worked hourly, I think you owe a debt to Jane and company over there at the whole house and reformers of all stripes, men and women from the era of the Gilded Age. And in closing, we're going to leave you with the eulogy written and delivered by journalist Walter Lippmann on the occasion of Jane Addams's funeral. She had compassion without condescension. She had pity without retreat into vulgarity. She had infinite sympathy for common things without forgetfulness of those that are uncommon. That, I think, is why those who have known her say she was not only good, but great. For this blend of sympathy with distinction, of common humanity with a noble style, is recognizable by those who have eyes to see it as the occasional but authentic issue of the mystic promise of American democracy. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! If you learned something today, you know what to do. Grab a friend or two and introduce them to the History Chicks. We would really appreciate it. I have added more pictures over on the Pinterest board, more than I had during part one. So head on over there and explore not just Jane Addams, but we have a board for every single episode. And um, I really do add 10 to 20 pictures daily at uh, stoplights, mostly. Be safe, kids. Be safe. 
The end song, again, just like part one, is Worth the Fight by Marie Hines, used with permission from Music Alley. Wipe the darkest shades away Happiness, your saving grace Ignorance won't clean the slate Won't find your final resting place Don't circle round the task at hand Take a fall when you can stand Disregard the reprimand Needing more than second hand There's bigger pictures to paint More horizons to chase Something better in searching popping off my computer and I'm like are you trying to tell me something like this day is brought to you by the letter F
<laughs> keep pushing it down and it keeps being like boop not done so that's funny that's funny